This is Global Greek Influence. Today, I'm with Ellie Simons. Ellie was born and raised in Melbourne. She is one of the Hellenic children of the diaspora. She has Icelandic roots from Ithaca in Greece and Cyprus. She was married to a well-known Australian musician, TV personality and broadcaster. So they had mostly a life in the public eye. She has three sons. Ellie's eldest son had brain cancer at the age of four. She was devoted to caring for all her three boys and dealing with her eldest son's medical issues. Her eldest son developed a new brain tumor aged 26 and sadly passed away the following year. Since then, she had spoken publicly about brain cancer and palliative care for young people. Ellie had degrees in business, archaeology and psychology. She was always passionate about Greek issues and so she became involved in the Parthenon Sculptures reunification campaign and also the Justice for Cyprus movement. She now lives in Athens and is working to promote Greece, Cyprus and the Hellenic issues. Welcome to the show, Ellie. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It is quite rare we meet people that had your life, and of course there's more to come, in terms of being devoted to your family, but then at the same time having other interests or even externalizing some of your interests that emerged from your everyday life. Yes, that's true. I understand that you had quite a tough time during your eldest son's cancer treatment. And you realized there were big gaps in palliative care for young people. Now, I also understand that you have already spoken extensively to different media about what happened. And I wouldn't like to focus on that rather than on what you do regarding raising awareness about palliative care for young people and brain cancer treatment? Look, I think um, one of the things I would probably like to um, focus on is that regardless of um, any particular health issue that a child of yours may have or, you know, your own personal health issue, one of the things I, I tried to focus on with my son, and he was very young when it first happened, but I tried to, to model a way of living and uh, a philosophy of living that wasn't uh, so much about the illness or the issue. And I think that that advice is um, can be translated to, to you know, every, every challenge. I mean, everyone has a set of abilities, has a set of circumstances that, you know, um, that cause their life to, to, to have, um, you know, to, to, to have a pathway. But you, you have a choice about how you respond to some of these uh, difficulties, whether it's an illness, um, an acute illness, something that's life-threatening, whether it's chronic, whether it's situational. 
And so I tried to instill in him um, that he wasn't a victim of this disease, that it didn't define him uh, and it didn't define our family. I mean, he had cancer and he lived his whole life with cancer and our family lived with that. But we, my husband and I made a conscious decision that it wasn't going to define us uh, and or it wasn't going to define Samuel's life. So I constantly had expectations for him the same as I had for my other two sons. You know, I expected him to do his best at school. I expected him to achieve milestones, even though they were very difficult for him. I mean, he had cranial radiation and on a young developing brain that causes difficulties. But um, I think because we we set the set the bar at a you know we had these expectations and I helped him have those expectations of himself, he was able to achieve all these you know developmental milestones and he thrived at school. He did very well at school. He went to university. When the doctors predicted if if he survived, he had a one percent chance of survival and a ninety nine percent chance of losing his life to this first brain tumour. If he did survive, he wasn't going to be able to complete school. He would be out, out of school by 15. So he went on to go to university and he did a master's degree. So he defied all these odds. And it's I think it's a testament to him, I suppose, and to me, I suppose, because uh, obviously he's a very strong, he was a very strong young man, but because we we didn't didn't set these limits. We 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 raised the bar. We had the expectations. So he was able to achieve things that the doctors were, you know, just um, found incomprehensible. And uh, it, it was a it was a story of inspiration uh, because he he didn't see himself as a victim. And then later on, he went on to he wanted to. Um, use his experiences to help to navigate the system and for the system to get better. So he volunteered and he worked in the hospital that treated him when he was four. He volunteered at this hospital for five years. He served on their youth cancer advisory board when they were creating a new a whole new hospital and the way young young cancer patients were treated. And so his input directly influenced um, the treatment, uh, the facilities and the, and the, and the, the whole um, structure around um, treatment for young people with cancer. So, um, and then sadly, he developed this new one, which just came out of left field and um, tragically took his life. But he had made such a significant input that he was awarded with a, um, a health minister's award, uh, which he was so proud of. Uh, and obviously we were proud of as well. So I, I think that I think the key is that, you know, whether it's an illness, whether it's a disability, whether it's situational economic hardship, I think we all have a choice about how we respond to things and, and we have to do our best and try and think about, focus on what we can do and rather than be limited on what we can't do. So that was something I really tried to teach him. Based on this experience, having 
a child who was undergoing such a traumatic experience for his age, the yes. shock to your family, and then also as a young man undergoing the same process. I'm wondering what are these steps that are missing now in order to optimize the quality of life uh, and mitigating suffering among people with serious complex illnesses? I think, um, I think a lot of attention is focused on the treatment, you know, by necessity, especially if it's a life-threatening uh, thing like cancer. But then what happens is the system doesn't seem to, when, when the treatment has finished, the system gives the child back to the family and says, okay, so, you know, go on your, go on your merry way. And so a family then is left if the child is under 18, obviously, and even when the, the, the sick person is, is over 18, the, the family and the person is left to pick up the pieces and try to recreate their life, put their life back together again. So the, the, the medical system, as I said, by necessity is focused on the treatment, um, but it seems that the rehabilitation, well, there's a limited amount of rehabilitation in medical systems, but after that, you're really um, on your own, and and it's the ch I guess it's the charity sector that maybe steps into that void a little bit that has you know some limited programs and things to to help families in these situations. But I think in the end, it's up to the individual and the circumstances of the family to then. Um, recreate this life uh, with this new, um, the new reality of whatever the, the, the treatment or the disease or the situation caused. And again, it's, it's up to personal resilience um, to, to create that, that new life for you. So it's, it's not an easy thing. It's a difficult thing, but um, I think these are these are the gaps, and I think society has to, you know, we have to find ways to help uh, these people that haven't been dealt with, you know, a good a, a, an easy hand of cards. Um, I think we have to find ways to sort of accommodate some of these differences, and I think society is getting better at that recognizing that you know everyone not everyone is born with the same set of opportunities and uh but you know and so for a fair i mean we're all working for a fairer society uh but you know that obviously there's always work to do with that most of your life you have been dedicated to your family raising your children and even now that they're grown-ups uh it's more than uh, a taken that you still care for them a lot, even though now you're back in Greece. What is the difference now in your life priorities than when you were 20 or 30 years old? Yes, well, I was a young mum. I, I, I got married young and I had my family young. And so I, I did have a period of time where I was uh, in a career. I had two careers. I was in a consulting firm and then I, I also did some modelling as well while I was at uni. And I had travelled. So I'd had, by the time I did get married and have my children, I had done sort of some of the things that I had wanted to do. But once I realised, once I had my first child and then my second child, I, I realised that I, 
was the kind of person that wanted to really um, raise my children as best as I could and be, you know, not just a mum, but an educator. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed that. And because my husband, uh, you know, you know, handled the finances pretty well. I, you know, I had the luxury of being able to make that choice. And um, then, of course, when my son was four and my second son was two, he became six. So that was a very full-on period. And then, uh, and then I suppose we, we had a third child. So once I had three sons and and this illness to deal with, it became, you know, really a full-time job, you know, by necessity. Uh, rather than by choice. So during that period, and I mean, I, I absolutely loved being a mom. I was uh, really um, quite fulfilled in that role. Um, and, and so I thought, well, okay, what can I do whilst I'm, that's not going to impinge on that responsibility too much. And I thought, okay, well, I always wanted to study archaeology. And so I I went back to uni and I did an archaeology degree. So that, and that was, gave me that flexibility. So it gave me a, a, an interest, a passion outside the house. And I was able to fulfill all my roles that I, you know, inside the house. Uh, and then a little bit later on when the boys were at high school, um, obviously I was running around with three boys, three teenage boys and all their sport and commitments. But I, because I'd had a lot of um, input into their development and the educational side of things, and I was looking at um, cognitive issues, um, I decided I'd already done so much reading that I decided to do a psychology degree as well. So um, that was a real passion and I thoroughly enjoyed that it was very eye-opening and then I realized it actually overlapped with you know with my business degree and my archaeology I mean psychology is fundamental to you know understanding the way people work and in fact so in the business environment you know that the, the say that the thought processes behind market behavior is really is group behavior and groups are made up of individuals so back to psychology and then with the archaeology I mean going back far enough in time with the rise of you know hunter-gatherer groups to towns to civilizations that required comp complexity and organization and politicization then again psychology you know fed into that as well so um and then also with you know child development and education uh, I was able to put some theory behind what I had seen raising my sons. So that's how it all, that's how three different degrees kind of tie together. There is a common thread with that, with all of them. You're absolutely right to take this approach because uh, most of the times we don't really pay attention to our everyday needs, but also to what is of interest to us. And we might think that our academic interests are far away from what we do in our everyday lives, in our reality. It's very nice to see that you have seen that, that you have identified the synergy between these different uh, sectors and how they could fuel 
different aspects of your life and the people around you, even if these people around you were um, and are your family or your immediate um, uh, social circle or to a greater extent the society? Yes, I think that's true. I mean, ever since I was a young girl, I, I wanted to understand how the world worked. And so I found, I mean, I read a few novels and stories and things, but really I loved reading nonfiction books. I used to take encyclopedias to bed. I used to be a, a small child taking these big, heavy encyclopedias to bed because I wanted to understand facts and history. And so I always gravitate, I guess I gravitated to history as a younger child because you know, I mean, it's the, it's the story of what has been before us. And so, you know, when we want to understand how the world is today, we can't do that without understanding what it was before and how we've come to where we are today. Um, and so um, archaeology really uh, gave me a way to sort of unpack that a little bit more. Um, and then as and the psychology did, but just just raising a child, um, just raising a family, it's really fascinating to see how we develop. And, and when you become a parent, it forces you to think very deeply and very clearly about your own motivations and your own way of being in the world, because you are responsible for teaching this young child how to be in the world. I mean, we don't have children so that they can be dependent on us forever. We, we raise our children from the moment they're born, they, they're becoming independent until hopefully they finish their studies and they gain employment uh, and are gainfully employed in the world. So we don't raise them to be dependent, we raise them to be independent. And so between that period, you realise there's a lot of things they have to learn and you're their guide. And in order for you to guide them and teach them, it forces you to really think, well, hang on, what do I think about that? Um, and so I, I, I really analysed, you know, how my parents were with me, their journey, especially my, my, my grandparents' journey on my mum's side from Ithaca and uh, my father's journey being born in Cyprus and being uh, and, and getting on a boat when he was 19 to, to have to find a better life, more economic opportunity in Australia. So becoming a parent myself forced me to think about my history, my parents and grandparents, how they came to make decisions and choices in their life, how they were raised, their values, the values I learned and the ones that I considered to be important and necessary to pass on to my children. So in fact, our story, when you have children, that becomes just the narrative just keeps moving. I mean, you are part of a continuous narrative and you, you filter through what comes through to you and you filter what you want through to your children. So, you know, it's a very powerful and important role. And then of course, as they do, they, they leave the nest and they set on their own paths in life and then you're not needed so much anymore. You take a step back and you 
you know, help them, encourage them and help them dust themselves off when they make a few mistakes and you cheer them on when they have uh, victories and, uh, yes. And so then I guess as an empty nester, which I am now, I have a bit more time to focus on the things that, um, you know, I like doing. So that's where I'm at now, an empty nester with time on my hands to to forge a new kind of pathway. We live our lives based on decisions we make, which uh, shapes our future. Also, our decisions shape the future of our children. And if our children are our continuation, history is where we come from. But psychology is important in shaping those decisions. Why have your roots been crucial to the way you see the world and life? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, our history is one thing, our environment is another. But, I mean, we are born with our personality traits and our differences. Um, and so I always thought across my three boys, I mean, they're obviously completely different. And um, I, I've been reflecting on this lately and I realised that we can't treat our children equally uh, because they're not the same. Um, and so um, I realised that I treated them equitably. So there's a little bit of a difference. Um, I, I gave them each what they needed and so they each needed different things. Um, in terms of how that uh, shapes them, I think, you know, they, they each have their pathways now. And um, look, I think um, it's, it's important that they recognise that, yes, they have, um, they, they come from a continuum, they're on a continuum, but they're individuals and they will make their choices uh, according to their circumstances. But in terms of the importance of my history and my roots to me, I felt that, um, I just felt them very strongly. Um, I felt that as a second and third generation Greek and Cypriot in the diaspora, living in an Anglo country like Australia, which I love, I love Australia, it's a great country to live in and I feel Australian, but I also, I also feel Greek and so, you know, I think it's the, uh, the constant sort of dilemma of the of any diaspora person, be it Jewish, Chinese, Irish, uh, whatever. Um, you know, when I'm in Australia, I feel Greek. And when I'm in Greece and Cyprus, I feel Australian. And I feel like a, a little bit of a fish out of water wherever I am. So I guess I've learnt now how to, well, I, I to honour all those um, all those traditions they're all part of me and um, I value all of them but I guess I now have the opportunity to live what I call my unlived Greek life so for my first half century in Australia I felt like there was I had my Australian life but I felt in parallel, somewhere in the universe, there was a parallel unlived Greek life that I didn't get to have, that I didn't get to have because quite literally my parents and grandparents got on a boat 
and went to the Antipodes, went to the other side of the world. And had they not done that, I would have had a Greek life or a Cypriot life. So I feel that now I have returned to that or place of origin and, and I made a conscious decision. I, I've been coming to Greece and Cyprus quite a lot in the last five years. And each time I came for three or four weeks or six weeks and then left, I thought I was unfulfilling. I thought I, I don't want to be a tourist. I don't want to come to Greece and Cyprus as a tourist anymore. I hate leaving after four weeks and feeling like I had to rush around and see the museums and quickly squeeze in every, everything every day and then rush home. I thought I don't want to experience Greece and Cyprus like that. So I made a conscious decision to buy an apartment here um, and to live here. So I've been living here on and off for 18 months. I've been making the transition, but I love it now because I can get up in the morning and I can go to a museum if I want to, but if I don't want to, the museum will be there tomorrow and I can just enjoy the ambience of being an Athenian um, and getting into that everyday uh, rhythm of the city without being a tourist. So I'm really loving that experience. Well, I think the entire uh, Hellenic way of living is uh, a bit of a trap, and not only for Greeks or for Greeks of the diaspora, but also for people who are not originally Greek. When they visit Greece, they get into this uh, parallel universe of how life could be every day, and you cannot get enough of it. Well, I mean, look, Greece is blessed with sunshine, weather, beauty, coastline, and, you know, and, and this ancient history that permeates you wherever, wherever you look. I mean, you know that, you know that people have walked in these streets for thousands of years and, and the people, these people from two and a half thousand years ago that created classical Athens, classical fifth century Athens with all those extraordinary achievements of drama, philosophy, medicine, mathematics and of course democracy. And uh, it, it's just extraordinary. And you, and you feel that in your bones when you're walking around the, those small, tiny streets of Blaka in the foot of the Acropolis, you know that um, Socrates walked in those, you know, streets and uh, Euripides walked in those streets and, and the Theatre of Dionysus, that's where those plays were performed for the first time. And you, um, I mean, it's just an extraordinary feeling um and i think you know the, the greek tourism campaign of the last year one of the the last things that the one of the 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 things they were evoking was that greek summer feeling and it is a feeling um and i think even if you're not greek you feel that when you're in greece especially over summer it is a feeling for sure this is how I feel when I return to my home city or come to my mom's village in North Greece, which is like two steps away from Virginia. And sometimes I imagine that just across our house, on that particular hill, I can see Alexander the Great was riding his horse. 
so yes it's unimaginable to think that where you are right now all the history and all the thousands of people that have um, walked on the same streets on the same ground as you do now watch the same sky and breathe the same air well kind of the same air slightly more polluted these days Yes, I know it's absolutely true, and I and I get a sense of that when I just I'm a, I'm a real observer of Athenian people and Athenian life, and um, I I see there's there's something quite profound when you're in the location. I think that really um, is a very um, it gives you an insight. I mean, when you're in Australia and you learn about Greek history and all these you know, incredible people from Greek history. Um, and it's very hard to imagine um, imagine what daily life was like for Socrates. You know, how was he wandering around the Agora talking to the young people and uh, corrupting the youth? I mean, how did, that, how did that character come to be? But then when you're in Athens and you go into the, the Agora, the old, um, the old Agora, and you get a sense of what that was like, how he must have lived somewhere sort of in the, in the steps of the Acropolis and, you know, everyone wandered down to the Agora every day. That was where daily life occurred. And you get a sense of, well, okay, here was an old guy, a funny old eccentric guy standing in the Agora and... Um, telling stories like you can imagine him being a raconteur telling stories and a few young people maybe the disaffected youth of Athens gathering around listening to that funny old man but because it's in the location you get a real sense of how that uh, how that might have happened um so I'm I I find that that's a being in the location is a very powerful um uh way of uh, microscope, I suppose, of looking at, you know, and I just see people now, Greek people in their everyday life, and because of the weather and the length of the day and the heat of the summer evening, you get a sense of how people um, were outside a lot, how, you know, how they, where they congregated, and you get a real sense of that by being in the location. So it really deepens the understanding uh, rather than reading it in a book, reading about these characters in a book. It's just not the same. Given that uh, you're an Australian-born Cypriot Greek, having a great passion for history, which is further proven by your studies in archaeology, you're also the vice president of the Australian Parthenon Committee. But you also have an association with the Acropolis Research Group. So what is the synergy between, um, by being a member between these groups? Well, basically the Australian Parthenon Committee, there are two Australian committees, there's two British committees and there's another 18 or 20 committees around the world. So they are sort of uh, formed into an international association. So that's been going for about uh, 20, 20 to 25 years. And these committees are, you know, very um, um, are academic, diplomatic people, business people that have a passion for the reunification of the Parthenon marbles. 
Um, just in the last year or two, uh, a few of us um, decided to form a separate group called the Acropolis Research Group. There's four of us in Australia and four of us in the UK. And um, that just gives us a little bit of flexibility to not, not be sort of part of a, a more formal organisation. Um, and we we talk and write articles about cultural heritage and, and looted art and um, the, re, you know, repatriation of, of objects in, in, in general. But our prime focus is the, is the Parthenon, uh, is the Parthenon marbles. So as you know, half of them are in the British Museum, courtesy of Lord Elgin and his bribing of the local Ottoman overlords in 1802, and he erected scaffolding on the Acropolis and hacksawed half the marbles off and took them to um, London, became bankrupt and uh, convinced the English government to buy them from him, which the government did, and put them in the British Museum, which where they've been for 200 years. So um, obviously, you know, consensus is that they should return, the moral consensus is that they should return to Greece and um, hopefully the British will um, will agree at some point, we'll see the error of their ways and uh, and return them to, to the Acropolis Museum in Athens, which is waiting for them. In the second part of the interview, Ellie continues about the return of the Parthenon sculptures to Greece, coinciding in 2021 with the 200 years anniversary of the independence revolution of the Hellenes from the Ottoman Empire. Her activities with the World Hellenic Interparliamentary Association and the Justice for Cyprus movement, Turkey's future based on current aggressions towards Greece and Cyprus.